Did you know the Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. The FT. Hello and welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times. I'm Oliver Ralph from the Lex Column, standing in for Patrick Jenkins. And I'm joined by Michael Cotter of law firm Regulatory Legal, Laura Noonan, our investment banking correspondent, and Emma Dunkley, our retail banking correspondent. We'll be discussing the latest developments in the key data investment scandal, the latest controversy around ring fencing in the UK, and the attempts of Monte de Pasca di Siena, one of the world's oldest banks, to raise €3 billion Euro in a rights issue. So, we'll start with key data. It's been a big month for misconduct inquiries. We had fines in the foreign exchange scandal last week. This week, we've had the start of a, the LIBOR trial in London. And we've had a fine relating to the key data scandal. We'll start with you, Emma. Perhaps you could just give us a brief summary of what this scandal was all about and what happened to key data. Yes, so Key Data Investment Management sold a whole raft of products during the financial crisis, including structured products and some complicated investments that were domiciled in Luxembourg and invested in US traded life settlement policies. So about 37,000 people bought these products over a number of years, amounting to about £470 million worth. And Key Data had told a lot of the advisors selling the products and the customers themselves that they were eligible for ICES. However, following a bit of work from the financial watchdog, they were told that actually these products aren't eligible for ICES and so were therefore forced to pay a tax bill that they would have otherwise incurred. After realising they couldn't afford this bill, key data was forced into administration and closed down, leaving thousands of people without their money returned, the amount that they had invested in these products. So six years afterwards, finally, the directors of this company, who the FCA claim were aware of the fact that these products weren't ICES eligible, are finally being brought to justice and, and forced to pay a fine of £75 million in the case of Stuart Ford, the chief executive of the company. A huge fine for one person. Have we ever had that kind of fine before for an individual in the UK? No, this is a record. So the previous highest fine was £4 million in 2011. So this marks a new high and the 75 million figure essentially covers the amounts that Stuart Ford allegedly took in commissions and fees through selling some of the products via one of the Luxembourg funds. And what about the people who lost money in all of this? Are they likely to get any of it back? So a vast number of investors have thus far managed to claim back money via the financial services compensation scheme. But as a result, the money that the FSCS has paid out, it has managed to reclaim from a levy that it imposes on the investment management industry, which means a lot of firms that weren't involved in selling these key data products in the first place are having to pay a higher levy in order to pay out the compensation to investors. And to add insult to injury, the FSCS has taken to court a number of the advisors that sold these products, charging them a, a higher amount as well. So ultimately, it's like a double whammy on the industry. So now moving to Michael Cotter of law firm Regulatory Legal. Michael, this is a big ruling and a big fine. What's your reaction to what's happened this week? Well, my initial reaction is that it indicates quite clearly that the Financial Conduct Authority are honouring their commitment to try and get tough with fines of this kind. However, 
the first thing anybody must think when looking at this fine is what Mr. Ford's um, ability to pay this is, of course. Mm. One of the obvious issues is, is this just grandstanding by the regulator or actually something that we're going to see um, consistently from the regulator uh, in, in the future. Does he um, have £75 million pounds to, to pay this fine, do we think? Well, that remains to be seen. He has always indicated that he lost personally £100 million, pound, if not more, in the key data debacle and has gone on to say, of course, as soon as August of last year, that he was suing the regulator himself for £370 million, pound, believing key data to have been the scapegoat, effectively the scalp that the regulator needed post the financial crash in 2008. These claims remain to date, as we understand, unsubstantiated, but certainly not the end of this, I don't think. Do you think the FCA, in imposing such a big fine, is trying to send a... The FT. Hello, and welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times. I'm Oliver Ralph from the Lex Column, standing in for Patrick Jenkins. And I'm joined by Michael Cotter of law firm Regulatory Legal, Laura Noonan, our investment banking correspondent, and Emma Dunkley, our retail banking correspondent. We'll be discussing the latest developments in the key data investment scandal, the latest controversy around ring fencing in the UK, and the attempts of Monte de Pasca di Siena, one of the world's oldest banks, to raise €3 billion Euro in a rights issue. So we'll start with key data. It's been a big month for misconduct inquiries. We had fines in the foreign exchange scandal last week. This week we've had the start of the LIBOR trial in London and we've had a fine relating to the key data scandal. We'll start with you, Emma. Perhaps you could just give us a brief summary of what this scandal was all about and what happened to key data. Yes, so key data investment management sold a whole raft of products during the financial crisis, including structured products and some complicated investments that were domiciled in Luxembourg and invested in US traded life settlement policies. So about 37,000 people bought these products over a number of years, amounting to about £470 million worth. And key data had told a lot of the advisors selling the products and the customers themselves that they were eligible for ISAs. However, following a bit of work from the financial watchdog, they were told that actually these products aren't eligible for ICES and so were therefore forced to pay a tax bill that they would have otherwise incurred. After realising they couldn't afford this bill, key data was forced into administration and closed down, leaving thousands of people without their money returned, the amount that they had invested in these products. So six years afterwards, finally, the directors of this company, who the FCA claim were aware of the fact that these products weren't ICES, eligible are finally being brought to justice and, and forced to pay a fine of £75 million in the case of Stuart Ford, the chief executive of the company. A huge fine for one person. Have we ever had that kind of fine before for an individual in the UK? No, this is a record. So the previous highest fine was £4 million in 2011. So this marks a new high. And the £75 million figure essentially covers the amounts that Stuart Ford allegedly took in commissions and fees through selling some of the products via one of the Luxembourg Funds. And what about the people who lost money in all of this? Are they likely to get any of it back? So a vast number of investors have thus far managed to claim back money via the financial services compensation scheme. But as a result, 
the money that the FSCS has paid out, it has managed to reclaim from a levy that it imposes on the investment management industry, which means a lot of firms that weren't involved in selling these key data products in the first place are having to pay a higher levy in order to pay out the compensation to investors. And to add insult to injury, the FSCS has taken to court a number of the advisors that sold these products, charging them a, a higher amount as well. So ultimately, it's like a double whammy on the industry. So now moving to Michael Cotter of law firm Regulatory Legal. Michael, this is a big ruling and a big fine. What's your reaction to what's happened this week? Well, my initial reaction is that it indicates quite clearly that the Financial Conduct Authority are honouring their commitment to try and get tough with fines of this kind. However, the first thing anybody must think when looking at this fine is what Mr Ford's ability to pay this is, of course. Mm. One of the obvious issues is is this just grandstanding by the regulator or actually something that we're going to see um, consistently from the regulator uh, in, in the future. Does he have £75 million pounds to, to pay this fine, do we think? Well, that remains to be seen. He has always indicated that he lost personally £100 million, pound, if not more, in the key data debacle and has gone on to say, of course, as soon as August of last year, that he was suing the regulator himself for £370 million pound, believing key data to have been the scapegoat, effectively the scalp that the regulator needed post the financial crash in 2008. These claims remain to date, as we understand, unsubstantiated, but certainly not the end of this, I don't think. Do you think the FCA, in imposing such a big fine, is trying to send a message saying it's going to be bigger and tougher and perhaps taking a lesson from the kind of fines that are levied over in the US for financial misconduct? The Financial Conduct Authority at the turn of the year made it quite clear that they were very much going to start issuing larger fines than their predecessor, the Financial Services Authority. And this is the first of many, we understand, in this industry. And is it clear to you how they've arrived at this sum? One of the features of a lot of recent fines in the financial world has been that it's not been entirely clear how regulators have come up with the fines that they're imposing. Leading on from the prior question, one of the big criticisms about the fines in America is that they sometimes bear no significance to losses and or have any calculation explained. And one of the concerns, of course, is that if financial conduct authority in finding Stuart Ford 75 million at a later date are either unable to recover or on appeal drastically reduce that fine, it could in the long term end up being perhaps a bit of a scenario that they didn't wish to ultimately bring about. Michael, thanks very much. It sounds like with all these law cases going around, we'll be hearing a lot more from key data in the months and years to come. Thank you. So, moving on to ring fencing. This was proposed in the UK quite a few years ago, the idea of separating out within the same institution investment banking and retail banking opportunities. It was proposed a few years ago. It's not due to come in until 2019. So, Laura Noonan, why are we talking about this again now? Well, I guess even though it isn't due to come in for a number of years, really now banks are actually hammering down how it will actually work. So the large banks would have submitted plans to the authorities earlier this year and they are now waiting to find out how those plans have actually been received by the authorities. At the same time, you now have a number of voices saying that actually, yes, maybe in the aftermath of the financial crisis, the ring fencing would have been a good idea, but banking has come a long way since then. So there are some saying that actually we don't even need to actually do this at this point. So it is very much a talking point at the moment and people are getting quite excited about it. And what are the banks themselves saying as they try to figure out what the rules are going to be? 
The banks themselves, for the most part, aren't saying very much. I mean, certainly they were not keen to talk yesterday when we had a speech from the Bank of England's Martin Taylor, who was basically listing all of the reasons why he thinks that we do still need to do ring fencing. We asked all of the major banks to comment on that and they weren't keen to engage. We do know Lloyds has asked to be exempted from some of the elements of it. Lloyds is in a unique position because their bank has just changed so much since the crisis. Now more than 90% of their assets are actually in the retail bank so the amount to be ring-fenced is very small and they're essentially arguing that it is too onerous for them to comply with all of the parts of ring-fencing since they will have a very, very small ring-fenced entity. The other banks have been citing ring-fencing as being a concern in terms of their earnings going forward. The thing is, we're not terribly clear yet on how the various fine details are actually going to work out. So the Bank of England, they have given some information to banks and there was some stuff out in October talking about some of the more technical and the oversight aspects. We had a document out earlier today which then went through some very, very minor tweaks to that. So basically banks since October had been giving views on this document and the changes are really, really minor. There will be some more substantive stuff out over the summer which will get into how you will need to actually capitalise the ring-fenced entities, what kind of liquidity requirements they will have. We're expecting a number of consultations on that. Then we should have some final rules in the first half of 2016. And that's where it'll get interesting, really. So lots of details still to come, but the debate, I guess, will continue as various interested parties try to push these rules one way or another in their favour. And you mentioned that there's a speech given by Martin Taylor of the Bank of England, who used, of course, to be chief executive of Barclays in the 1990s. What was Martin Taylor saying about this? He was basically saying that the people who are now coming out and saying that we don't need to have ring fencing because banks are now better capitalised and banks are actually already safer. He was saying those people had actually missed the point because there were some other important objectives of ring fencing. It isn't just about making banks safer. It's also about breaking the links between investment banks and deposit taking institutions because there's an implicit subsidy for these deposit-taking institutions because it's kind of generally expected that in the event that they run into trouble, they will be bailed out. He was saying that if you have a co-mingling of the investment banks and the retail banks and the investment banks benefit from this subsidy in a way that they really oughtn't to. He was also saying that it was important to make it easier to resolve failing banks because if you have an investment bank ring fence from the retail bank, arguably you might only want to actually save the retail bank and you could then resolve the investment bank or you could resolve the whole thing more easily. So he was saying that there are still, even if we do say banks are now safer than they were pre-crisis, making banks safer was one of the three aims of ring fencing. Therefore, it is wrong to argue that simply because banks are now safer, we don't need to have ring fencing anymore. It sounds like there's a lot of talking still to come before the rules are finalised on that. I guess from the bank's point of view, they're worried that it will all end up being a major cost and extra burden of regulation as they're trying to recover from the crisis. But one area where this kind of thing is very much a live issue is in Italy. And as if to prove that it's not just investment banks that can find themselves in trouble, we have Monte de Pesca di Siena. This is what's said to be the world's oldest bank founded in 1472. It's trying to raise €3 billion to fill a capital hole found in last year's stress tests. Laura, we've been here before with Monte de Pesca, haven't we? At least this year they don't need as much money as last year. If you are a shareholder, I guess you really do have to wonder, is this the end of the tunnel or are we just going to see another succession of these? If you don't take part in this, you're facing dilution at 91% and that is a very big dilution. So 
it is a very tough choice for shareholders to make because, because there is a gun to their head. Yeah, I guess there's the worry that if they don't support it, then the bank could be in more trouble. If they do, maybe it's just throwing good money after bad. But on the plus side, I suppose this is being underwritten by a huge number of banks, I understand. 21 banks involved in this offering. So if they aren't able to get enough investors to take up their rights, then basically these banks will end up owning the bank and their aim would be to build value in it and then to sell it down the line, presumably for more than they would pay for it in this rights issue. And that, of course, is the big unknown about Italian banking. There's been a lot of talk and speculation about consolidation, particularly amongst the smaller banks, the so-called Populare banks. So consolidation won't involve the big two, Intesa San Paolo and Unicredit, but potentially Monte de Paschi and some smaller banks will be involved in various types. Do you think that kind of thing is likely in Italy? I think this kind of thing often sounds better in theory than it works out in practice. A similar case probably would have been Spain, where they had a lot of the smaller lenders consolidated to become Amnet Bankia, and that didn't end terribly well for them. So I think it is always very, very complicated when you're taking a lot of smaller entities and when you're trying to put it together. And the ideal way to do it is you put the smaller entities into something which is big and which is also strong and which has actually demonstrated that it is going to be able to run this thing well. So when you look at the recent history of MPS, you just wonder, will people have confidence that this really is the bank which is going to take Italian banking forward? And I think that given it has had so many of its own problems, it could be quite tough for it to be a credible force for consolidation. Yes, the other smaller banks might decide to consolidate amongst themselves and leave Monte de Paschi out of it because they want to avoid the headache. Well, that's all we have time for this week. All that's left for me to do is to thank Laura, Emma and Michael Carter. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of our banking stories at ft.com forward slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by John Byrne Murdoch. Until next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts law cases going around we'll be hearing a lot more from key data in the months and years to come thank you so moving on to ring fencing this was proposed in the uk quite a few years ago the idea of separating out within the same institution investment banking and retail banking opportunities it was proposed a few years ago it's not due to come in until 2019 so laura noonan why are we talking about this again now Well, I guess even though it isn't due to come in for a number of years, really now banks are actually hammering down how it will actually work. So the large banks would have submitted plans to the authorities earlier this year and they are now waiting to find out how those plans have actually been received by the authorities. At the same time, you now have a number of voices saying that actually, yes, maybe in the aftermath of the financial crisis, the ring fencing would have been a good idea, but banking has come a long way since then. So there are some saying that actually we don't even need to actually do this at this point. So it is very much a talking point at the moment and people are getting quite excited about it. And what are the banks themselves saying as they try to figure out what the rules are going to be? The banks themselves, for the most part, aren't saying very much. I mean, certainly they were not keen to talk yesterday when we had a speech from the Bank of England's Martin Taylor, who was basically listing all of the reasons why he thinks that we do still need to do ring fencing. We asked all of the major banks to comment on that and they weren't keen to engage. We do know Lloyds has asked to be exempted from some of the elements of it. Lloyds is in a unique position because 
their bank has just changed so much since the crisis. Now, more than 90% of their assets are actually in the retail bank. So the amount to be ring-fenced is very small. And they're essentially arguing that it is too onerous for them to comply with all of the parts of ring-fencing since they will have a very, very small ring-fenced entity. The other banks have been citing ring-fencing as being a concern in terms of their earnings going forward. The thing is, we're not terribly clear yet on how the various finer details are actually going to work out. So the Bank of England, they have given some information to banks and there was some stuff out in October talking about some of the more technical and the oversight aspects. We had a document out earlier today which then went through some very, very minor tweaks to that. So basically banks since October have been giving views on this document and the changes are really, really minor. There will be some more substantive stuff out over the summer which will get into how you will need to actually capitalise the ring-fenced entities, what kind of liquidity requirements they will have. We're expecting a number of consultations on that. Then we should have some final rules in the first half of 2016. And that's where it'll get interesting, really. So lots of details still to come, but the debate, I guess, will continue as various interested parties try to push these rules one way or another in their favour. And you mentioned that there's a speech given by Martin Taylor of the Bank of England, who used, of course, to be chief executive of Barclays in the 1990s. What was Martin Taylor saying about this? He was basically saying that the people who are now coming out and saying that we don't need to have ring fencing because banks are now better capitalised and banks are actually already safer. He was saying those people had actually missed the point because there were some other important objectives of ring fencing. It isn't just about making banks safer. It's also about breaking the links between investment banks and deposit taking institutions because there's an implicit subsidy for these deposit-taking institutions because it's kind of generally expected that in the event that they run into trouble, they will be bailed out. He was saying that if you have a co-mingling of the investment banks and the retail banks and the investment banks benefit from this subsidy in a way that they really oughtn't to. He was also saying that it was important to make it easier to resolve failing banks because if you have an investment bank ring friends from the retail bank, arguably you might only want to actually save the retail bank and you could then resolve the investment bank or you could resolve the whole thing more easily. So he was saying that there are still, even if we do say banks are now safer than they were pre-crisis, making banks safer was one of the three aims of ring fencing. Therefore, it is wrong to argue that simply because banks are now safer, we don't need to have ring fencing anymore. It sounds like there's a lot of talking still to come before the rules are finalised on that. I guess from the bank's point of view, they're worried that it will all end up being a major cost and extra burden of regulation as they're trying to recover from the crisis. But one area where this kind of thing is very much a live issue is in Italy. And as if to prove that it's not just investment banks that can find themselves in trouble, we have Monte de Pesca di Siena. This is what's said to be the world's oldest bank founded in 1472. It's trying to raise €3 billion Euro to fill a capital hole found in last year's stress tests. Laura, we've been here before with Monte de Pesca, haven't we? At least this year they don't need as much money as last year. If you are a shareholder, I guess you really do have to wonder, is this the end of the tunnel or are we just going to see another succession of these? If you don't take part in this, you're facing dilution at 91% and that is a very big dilution. So it is a very tough choice for shareholders to make because Because there is a gun to their head. Yeah, I guess there's the worry that if they don't support it, then the bank could be in more trouble. If they do, maybe it's just throwing good money after bad. But on the plus side, I suppose this is being underwritten by a huge number of banks, I understand. 21 banks involved in this offering. So if they aren't able to get enough investors to take up their rights, then basically these banks will end up owning the bank. And 
their aim would be to build value in it and then to sell it down the line, presumably for more than they would pay for it in this rights issue. And that, of course, is the big unknown about Italian banking. There's been a lot of talk and speculation about consolidation, particularly amongst the smaller banks, the so-called Populare banks. So consolidation won't involve the big two, Intesa San Paolo and Unicredit, but potentially Monte de Paschi and some smaller banks will be involved in various types. Do you think that kind of thing is likely in Italy? I think this kind of thing often sounds better in theory than it works out in practice. A similar case probably would have been Spain where they had a lot of the smaller lenders consolidated to become Amrit Bankia and that didn't end terribly well for them. So I think it is always very, very complicated when you're taking a lot of smaller entities and when you're trying to put it together. And the ideal way to do it is you put the smaller entities into something which is big and which is also strong and which has actually demonstrated that it is going to be able to run this thing well. So when you look at the recent history of MPS, you just wonder, will people have confidence that this really is the bank which is going to take Italian banking forward? And I think that given it has had so many of its own problems, it could be quite tough for it to be a credible force for consolidation. Yes, the other smaller banks might decide to consolidate amongst themselves and leave Monte de Paschi out of it because they want to avoid the headache. Well, that's all we have time for this week. All that's left for me to do is to thank Laura, Emma and Michael Cotter. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of our banking stories at ft.com forward slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by John Byrne Murdoch. Until next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's Corient.com. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc.